Now, we've done a lot of celebrating, haven't we, already this month. We've taken the whole of March off from our Exodus preaching series, and we celebrated to start with Mothering Sunday, which was really rather lovely. And then last week, we celebrated the baptisms of Rose and Sally. Who was here for that? They were fantastic, weren't they? It was just wonderful to hear their testimonies and how they've come to new life in Jesus. And today, we're going to be celebrating Palm Sunday. We're going to mark the start of Holy Week. We're going to look at how it was on Palm Sunday with the jubilation of the crowd. And then we're going to walk through those steps to Good Friday, as Aid was talking about, when there's despair, actually, and gloom. But we know, don't we, that we're going to come out the other side, that we do come to, Palm Sunday, uh, to Easter Sunday after Palm Sunday. So it was a week back then of a lot of emotion, a lot of high drama. 2,000 years ago, it was a very tense and difficult week in many ways. But for us, it changed everything forever, didn't it? And I often think it's really difficult for any one of us here to really, truly appreciate what it would have been like to be there back then, 2,000 years ago. Can you cast your minds back and really understand what was going on for Jesus, for the disciples, for the crowd that was in Jerusalem at the time, or even just the onlookers? They must have been experienced and witnessing so many different things, mustn't they? But you know what? As we go through that today, as we look at Palm Sunday, we can all appreciate the fact that what Jesus did on Easter Sunday has changed us all forever, hasn't it? And we can know God in a real relational way. We can have deep and intimate relationship with Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit, don't we? So let's bear that in mind as we pray. I think it's really important that we do mark these events in our church calendar. This is the most important week, isn't it? so many ways for us passion week so i'm going to pray for us now and i'm going to ask the lord to highlight what he wants to teach each one of us this morning individually but also corporately as one body in him so join with me and pray father we just lay ourselves out before you now and i ask that you will help each one of us here to be alert and awake in our spirits to what you have to say to each one. Lord, let none of us leave this place without a fresh touch from you, a fresh word. Help us, Lord, to be challenged, to be encouraged. Lord, we don't want to be a sleepy people. Keep us awake, Lord. Take my words. And even if the natural, there may be some who want to fall asleep, Lord, in the supernatural, keep them awake. Keep them awake to what you're saying. Keep us alert this morning, Lord. Amen. Okay, so what I want to do this morning is I want to set the scene for us. We are going to look back at what actually happened on Palm Sunday. We're going to revisit a little bit of Old Testament prophecy. And we're going to look at how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. And then I want to spend quite a bit of time looking at the crowd. I've entitled this talk, One of the Crowd. And I want us to put ourselves in the position of the crowd and see how we might have felt back then. But also, we're a crowd of Jesus' followers today, aren't we? So what do we feel now? What does Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, what sort of effect does it have on our walk with Jesus now in 2016? But let's look back 2,000 years ago, and we're going to look at that time when Jesus is entering Jerusalem. 
He's entering the holy city, isn't he? And we're going to reflect together on his final journey on earth. And it leads him, doesn't it, to Golgotha, to Calvary, to that place of the skull. And as Fee was saying earlier in worship, it's a place where he was brutally crucified. It was a place of torture and real horror. It was a painful and traumatic end. It was a culmination of his ministry on earth. And it looked ugly on that day, didn't it? But actually Golgotha is also the place where Jesus secured our salvation. So it's beautiful too. And I think that Palm Sunday is definitely worth celebrating, isn't it? But before we go any further, we're going to look together at one account from the Gospel of Luke. And I've asked Pete to come up and read this to us. And you can find it on page 1054-1054 of your church Bibles. All found it? You know where you're going to finish this week, don't you? <laughs> That's a reference to me going on and on reading Acts 2 last week. <laughs> <laughs> this is the triumphal entry from Luke 19 and verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives. He sent, he, sent off two, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you untie it, tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, his owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their coats on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will embark, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Thank you, Pete. Now, while I've already said we're taking a break from our preaching series in Exodus, we are actually going to refer to a particular 
event that has its roots very deeply in that book. So we're going to pause now and we're going to consider why there was such a large crowd in Jerusalem at that time and why it was so significant. So who knows why Jesus was met by such large crowds as he came into Jerusalem at this time? What were they celebrating? Anybody know? Pete. Feasts of the Passover, that's right. Obviously some of the disciples would have been following Jesus around anyway, but they were all making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. There were already swarms and swarms of them there when Jesus got there. It is still one of the most important festivals of the Jewish year, and they celebrate it because they are commemorating the time when Moses led his people out of Egypt. Now we're going to look at that story in a few weeks time I believe when we concentrate on Exodus chapter 12 but I just want to give the story in a nutshell for those who may be new to the faith and are not really that familiar with what's going on. Basically what happens in chapter 12 is Moses gets to a point in his life when he's called by God to liberate the Israelites and the Israelites are his kin, his people by birth But he's called to liberate them from the Egyptians, those who had brought him up, who had raised him. So he's in a very tricky position, but he knows that God is calling him to do this. And so he goes to see the leader of the Egyptians, the pharaohs, many, many times, and he's pleading for the release of his people. But this pharaoh is a stubborn pharaoh, and he'll have no truck with Moses and what he's saying, and he'll have no truck with the God of Israel. In fact, this pharaoh considers himself to be a god. And he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. But Moses warns him time and time again, there will be one plague after another that will come against your people if you do not let my people go. But Pharaoh doesn't. He digs his heels in. He will not cooperate. And so his people are subject then to ten devastating plagues, the last of which was just totally tragic. From the animals to the common people to Pharaoh himself, they all lose a firstborn child or a firstborn offspring. But God wants to spare the Israelites, so he instructs Moses to tell the people to find a spotless, a pure lamb, and to sacrifice it, and to take its blood and to smear it over the door frames, across the lintel, as a sign that when God passes over with this curse, that they will be spared. And of course, that is why it's called the Passover. And God instructs his people to always go on celebrating this. It is so key. It is so crucial. They need to do it. And that is why so many Jewish pilgrims are in Jerusalem at this time. They're obeying God's command. They're remembering the story of their ancestors But there's another reason too. As they're remembering, they're also very much looking forward to their own liberation, their own freedom from what they see as a political slavery, oppression by the Romans. And so that would have meant that there weren't only many, many Jewish people there, there'd also be loads and loads of Romans as well. Lots of Roman troops. They'd be on their guard because they knew full well that Passover not only offered (coughs) this time of celebration for the Jewish people, but it also offered a great opportunity for political activism with all those people that were crowding in. There's a first century Jewish historian called Josephus, and he actually gives many examples of where Passover turned really rather ugly and violent. 
There have been incidences even of Jews who would be claiming to be the Messiah at this time, and they'd be inciting the people and getting them to riot and really playing on their emotion and their feeling. And they'd really have it in for the Romans at that time as well. And so the Romans knew they had to ensure there'd be extra troops in Jerusalem during the season, and they wouldn't hesitate to shed blood if they needed to either. So the city would have been packed full of Jewish people and also packed full of Romans. And it's against this highly charged, this highly charged historical and political backdrop that Jesus enters in. On the Sunday before Passover, in the Jewish month of Nisan, he comes out of the wilderness on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives and he enters the holy city of Jerusalem. This is where we're going to pause for a moment and look at how Jesus, proving himself to be the true Messiah, fulfills some Old Testament prophecy. I want to reread the first part of what Pete read. You can follow it up on the PowerPoint. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go ahead to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. So here we see Jesus has selected a couple of disciples and he's told them to go to the village ahead and select this donkey. But it's not a case, is it, of going and selecting just any old donkey. We know, don't we, that donkeys were very common in that time. They were a common beast of burden and they were a common form of transport as well. But the choosing of this particular donkey in this manner was highly significant because it was fulfilling prophecy. It was proving that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Now, I don't know what your feelings are about donkeys, but I've always had a rather a soft spot for them. They're rather cute, aren't they? And I'm from that generation of kids where there's one, yeah, where we used to we used to ride them on the beach. I don't think you do that so much nowadays, do you? I don't know whether it's allowed or or not. But anyway, we used to ride them on the beach. And my nan would always tell me that there was proof that Jesus was alive because of the donkey and because of the cross that he has on his back. Now, you'll notice, I'm sure you will have noticed before, that donkeys have this bit of hair, don't they, that go all the way from the crown of their head right down to the bottom, to their tail, and then right across their shoulders, their shoulder blades. I don't know, do donkeys have shoulder blades? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that bit. So there's a, there's a lovely cross that goes across, and it's sort of his hair that stands up, and you do actually get different breeds of donkeys, and I've seen some pictures of some really shaggy donkeys as well, but apparently when you look through all the shagginess of the donkey, they still have that cross. Now, I don't suppose that's scientific evidence, is it, that Jesus existed or is alive today? Of course it's not, but it convinced me as a kid. I knew that there was an awakening in faith in me, and it was because of a donkey. Of course, nowadays, I have a lot more historical proof, and I have the relational proof with Jesus, so I don't need the donkey, but it is a lovely reminder. But that's just me. What about the Jewish people back then? What did the choosing of this particular donkey say to them? What's Jesus doing when he mounts a colt and rides down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem? You know, it's actually rather funny, and I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's probably the only time when we hear that Jesus is riding 
a donkey. Um, and he's, not, he's chosen not to walk. And actually, I think the journey that he had was only a few miles. He didn't have very far to go. And he would have been used to walking everywhere, wouldn't he? And most of the pilgrims, well, I think most of the pilgrims, would be arriving on foot. That was a normal way to come into the city at that time, especially if it was really crowded. You wouldn't be pushing through on a donkey, do you? But Jesus is very intentional about how he arrives. He arrives in a manner that will single him out from the crowd, that will set him apart, and it's totally deliberate. So let's look at that. Now, firstly, we know, don't we, that all of... Jesus' life, his birth, his life on earth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, is foretold many times in Old, scripture, in Old Testament scripture. There's proof. It ties in all the time, and often it's very exact, and it's very precise. And I think this is a really lovely example of a precise fulfilling of prophecy. We're going to look at Zechariah 9.9, and Zechariah was prophesying around 520 years before Jesus' actual birth. So a good five centuries before he was born. This is what he says. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And the people would have known that. They would have known that prophecy. And they would have understood, or at least some of them would. But Jesus' choice of transfer isn't only about the fulfilment of prophecy, I think. It also tells us something about Jesus' character, about his very nature, about who he was. And that's often true for us, isn't it? I think often what we choose to go around in, what we choose to drive, say, or use, reflects our character a little bit. Now, obviously, there's not many of us who would ride a donkey nowadays, are there? I know Karen works with donkeys, but I don't even know if she particularly rides them. There's a few of you here who um, ride horses. I'm thinking of Liz and Bethany and Jess as well, and I'm sure there's some others that ride for pleasure and for sport. And there's some who are keen cyclists. I always think of Morris when I think of cycling. And there may be some of you who enjoy riding a skateboard. Any skateboarders or scooterers? There's all sorts of things we like to do. Sandra, did you, you just put your hand up when I said skateboard? I thought you did. <laughs> well, full of surprises. Okay, but generally, if we're able to drive, we do, don't we? We'll drive a car or maybe a motorbike or a motorcycle. I want you to have a think about what you're driving at the moment. Okay, we're going to put up a few examples. What you're driving, I've got a nice horse up there as well. And think about why you chose what you're driving at the moment. There's all sorts of reasons. Cost, practical use, desire, status symbol maybe. You might think it's rather funny that I've got Penny Farthing up there. But I will tell you that on the way back from the Abbey last year, Linda and I were driving to Tiverton, weren't we, to see Emma and Henry. And there was somebody on the dual carriageway who was on a penny farthing. So I thought I'll put one up there. It was quite a sight, wasn't it? <laughs> so there's all sorts of things there. Now, I'm sure many of you looking would sort of see your dream mobile there, as well as maybe the one that you've got. I don't know. Anyone want to share with me what kind of car they've got, or motorbike, and why they chose it? Come on, don't be shy. Have we got a microphone? 
Where's the microphone? Hold on, I'm not going to talk to Val in a minute when I can find the mic. Oh, lovely, thank you. Val, well, I did have a car, which I'd given away, and I chose it because my students had the same one, and it went to 150,000, so I thought that would last me out. Okay. Would last someone else out. Brilliant. So, really, it was sort of on the grounds of economy, and you knew it was a good, reliable car. Great. Okay, Roy. Yeah, I got a Land Rover 4x4, and that's practical for, for me, um, because uh, maybe three or four years ago now, since we had real snow, and uh, we were cut off twice in the, in the village because it's difficult to get out of Broadhampton, it's slow the other way you go. But also from the uh, Joyce Wurst point of view, we do a lot of outside events, and the Land Rover is great for carrying uh, loads of books and things like that. Yeah. Okay, so that's great. So it's very much practical, isn't it? You live out the sticks and you need to be able to get out. Barry. Well, I'm not driving anything at the moment apart from my wife, Mad. <laughs> but I'm hoping to get a car during the summer when I can draw out one of my pensions, showing my age. Um, so I'm not sure what car to get yet. But I enjoy walking with a dog, so that's something. Thank you for that, Harry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyone else? We have one more. Alex. Uh, when Bethany was born 13 years ago, I just got on the web and searched for the safest car I could put a precious baby in, and it came up Volvo Estate. So I'm not really a Volvo man <laughs> at all, really. It's just it's a very safe car for my family to be in. That's lovely. So a mode of transport chosen out of love, really, and protection and security. That's great. Okay. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my choice of car at the moment. Over the years, I've had all sorts, really, from a sort of little old full Fiesta when I first started, and then I sort of graduated to other things as I went along. And then when I had three kids in about three years... I graduated to a huge people carrier, which was lovely, it was spacious, it was fantastic actually to drive in many ways, but actually quite difficult to manoeuvre and for me really hard to park and I would end up driving for miles and miles until I found somewhere that I could actually park, so it wasn't that practical for me, but I did need it for the kids. But nowadays, with my three teens, we generally don't go that many places together. So I've got myself a nice little car, and it's very much, it's not actually that one, but it's a bit like this one in the bottom corner there. It's all right, it's okay, it's tiny, it's quite old now, um, but it's automatic, which suits me, because I'm not the world's best driver, or the world's worst. I'm okay. I've got a couple of little flower stickers on the back just to personalise it a bit and not look so boring. Um, I keep it neat and clean and tidy, generally. I like to have a little ready amount of parking change. And I've also got many boiled sweets in my car. So if ever you come, you can have a boiled sweet, generally a mint humbug. Okay, now my car reflects who I am, I think. This is my choice. It reflects me perfectly. It shows that I'm quite practical, I'm quite economical really, I'm sweet-toothed, I'm organised, and I'm rubbish at parking. <laughs> now, two of my kids, my daughter's alright, but my sons think it's actually a little bit twee, that car, and it's a bit staid. It's a bit boring. 
But that suits me, because Ben's 17 now, and he's just started some driving lessons, so he's not going to want to use it, is he? <laughs> but I did, say, I did think I'd tell you that my other son is really, really particular about what he would like. And he's particular about many things, and it reflects his personality brilliantly. So I've checked with him, and he's all right for me to share this with you. He would like a motorcycle. It's not just any old motorcycle. <coughs> There it is. That's pretty good, isn't it? With a sidecar on it. And the sidecar is so that he can take his mum out and about. <laughs> so give it a couple of years. Picture us on that. I'm not quite sure that I'm convinced myself, but we'll see. But let's get back to Jesus' choice of the donkey. You can leave that up for a bit if you like. I know, Aid, you rather like that, didn't you? I don't think you get all your family in there somehow. <laughs> so what did Jesus' choice of transport say about him? What does the fulfilling of this prophecy underline about his character? Well, in the ancient Middle Eastern world, leaders would ride horses if they were riding to war, but donkeys if they were coming in peace. So rather than riding to conquer in the earthly sense, Jesus is here demonstrating beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is coming in peace. He doesn't want to incite riots. He's emphatically not riding a stallion or a war horse. He has chosen the most unmilitary mount imaginable. But it's also worth bearing in mind that while the donkey is portrayed as a humble, lowly creature in many ways, it's also very well respected in the Bible. Sometimes we think of a donkey as rather slow, don't we? Or dull, or stubborn, or a bit silly. We often think of like Eeyore, or Shrek. Not Shrek, the donkey in Shrek. <laughs> but the film Shrek, with donkey in it. I think he's called Donkey, isn't he? Yeah, and we think of that sort of character, don't we? But in the Old Testament, in particular, donkeys were in fact portrayed as strong and as loyal to their masters. And they were famed and fated for their patience, their gentleness, their submission, but also their great power of endurance. And people of all classes would ride a donkey, the rich and the powerful, as well as the lowly. In fact, in 1 Kings, we read that Solomon was riding a donkey on the day he's recognised as the new king of Israel. So donkeys did confer status. They did confer royalty and majesty. So it wasn't a case of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a figure of fun or a figure of scorn, but on a loyal and trustworthy beast of burden. And I think the lowly bit often refers more to the fact that he's chosen not to charge in on a great big stallion in a cloud of glory. He's humble and he's coming to serve his people, but he's still a king, he's still royal, he's still majestic, he's a servant king, he's a king of peace, not war. And just like our choice of transport reflects who we are, the ride Jesus chooses tells us what his life is all about. Not for him the war horse, or even a chariot. He chooses a trotting little colt, humble and unimpressive. So for him it's a statement. And note as well, the colt has never ever been ridden before. Verse 30 says, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. So this cult has been set apart for a sacred task. 
He's got a special honour, hasn't he? So I think he's worth a mention. He's taken from his mother for that express purpose. He's going to be mastered first for Jesus and carry Jesus through the crowds into Jerusalem. So let's go back to those crowds. Let's leave the donkey behind now. We're going to go back to the crowds. And I really want you to enter into thinking what it must have been like back then. Picture yourself born in a different time. First century AD, a completely different Middle Eastern culture. Maybe think what it would be like to be a pilgrim who's travelled all the way through Galilee and you've just reached Jerusalem. It's a springtime Sunday, as I said before, just before the celebrations of Passover. And you're part of that crowd and you're watching as this enigmatic figure rides into town, flanked by his followers. And as he rides in, the disciples are praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they've seen him do. And you may then feel your faith rising. And you might pick up your coat and you might lay it before him. You might throw it out before him. You might even grab or cut down a palm branch and start waving it as you feel real jubilation rising up in you. Or maybe you're not really sure what's going on. You can't really work it out, but you sense something. You sense the divine. You're touched by the supernatural. You breathe in a fragrance of holiness. You breathe in Jesus' perfume, and you can't help but join in with those cries of Hosanna. And you realise that the people are quoting from the Old Testament again, Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And it stirs up something in you. We read in the Gospel of Matthew, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the King of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And so maybe you realise, you get it, you know who Jesus is. You know that this man that everyone has been talking about, yes, he is the Messiah. He is really the King. Maybe you're having a divine revelation for the very first time. Maybe not. Maybe you're just swept along by the emotion of the crowd. I think there's all sorts of maybes back then. And maybe, perhaps, you're welcoming Jesus because actually you're desperate for a king who's going to rise up and liberate your people right now. Right here, right now from that Roman oppression. Maybe you're one of those in the crowd who doesn't actually believe he is who he says he is. But actually he could deliver you right now. He's a quick fix. He can do what you need, so you'll call upon him now. So maybe you hail him with those hosannas, which means save us now. Maybe you're hailing him with those hosannas because you want earthly liberation. You need an end to what's going on in your earthly life. You're looking for the temporal, but you can't see the eternal. Maybe again, maybe you're one of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. You're one of those esteemed Jewish leaders some of whom thought they knew it all. They knew exactly how it would be when Jesus came. I wonder how you'd be feeling, what your response would be. Most likely you'd feel threatened, wouldn't you? Because the common people were rising up. They weren't looking to you anymore. They were looking at Jesus and they were fating him. 
But it's not how you think the Messiah is going to arrive. You want the Messiah with the stallion. You want military might and mighty present. So you might even be one of those who dares to challenge Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Or maybe not. Maybe even as a Sadducee or a Pharisee, you see beyond your power, you see beyond your position, and you glimpse who Jesus really is. And you turn to him. Because we know, don't we, that not all of the Jewish leaders turned away from him. Some accepted him. Maybe again, maybe you're Roman. What would you feel? That would be quite a scary place to be, wouldn't it? It would be a place of high tension and high drama. So you'd feel some fear, probably, wouldn't you? At the very least, you'd be wary. You might be worried that there's going to be an imminent uprising or revolt. You don't want to lose power. You don't want to lose position. It's a scary place to be, isn't it? And you know that the crowds want a messiah. You know they're desperate for this political, military leader. And what's more is you pick up on the symbolism of the branch waving. Nowadays, we often see these branches, don't we, as a symbol of peace and love and triumph, and the crowds waving them before Jesus. And they were. But they also had different connotations as well, other connotations for first century Jews and Romans. They were the national symbol for Judah, and so they were routinely used to celebrate any sort of military victory. And there would have been many zealots among the crowds, I'm sure, many political activists. And they'd be waving their branches in a whole different way, wouldn't they? They wouldn't be waving it to celebrate Jesus coming. They'd be waving because they wanted their liberation from the Romans. It was an expression of desire for political freedom. So maybe as a Roman, you're really quite desperate to reign on this particular parade. Then again, even as a Roman, you may sense the divine in this man. Again, we know, don't we, many Romans turn to Christ. There might be a shift in your spirit as you see him come through. You see the truth of who this man is. He's not the political military leader. He's a true king. He's coming in peace on that donkey, and he has the promise of salvation for everyone, not just the Jews, but also the Romans, Jew and Gentile alike. So that's the crowd. There would have been all sorts of emotions, wouldn't there? All sorts of agendas, hopes, fears, a whole raft of expectations. What's it like then for Jesus? What's it like for him to ride into Jerusalem (coughs) among this crowd? How would he have been feeling on this last leg of this journey? Well, let's go back to what Luke tells us. He tells us that Jesus was weeping, that he actually wept. And that's profound, isn't it? Jesus was shedding tears as the people were celebrating, as they were crying out, Hosanna. And there were tears of grief for many, for the hearts of his people, for their spiritual poverty. And I expect he was weeping too, deep down, because he knew what was coming for him. And he knew what was coming for Jerusalem, for its destruction, and for generation upon generation to come. And he does weep for us now as well, I know that. And it's a really poignant moment for him personally, because he knows what lies ahead. He knows what he had to face for us. He knew that at this particular Passover time, he was going to be the sacrificial lamb. He'd be the Passover lamb for each one of us, the lamb of God. 
And just as those who are attending the festival will be selecting that pure, spotless and unblemished lamb, he knew that he'd already been selected and he was to be sacrificed. And he knew that for many in the crowd that had gone right over their heads. They just didn't get it. They were looking for a different sort of saviour. He knew full well that he couldn't be to them what they were expecting or even wanting or demanding then. And so he would have cried in the midst of celebration. He would have wept for his people. And he still weeps for us now. Jesus can empathise with us. And he knows what it's like for us to go through all sorts of experiences. He knows what it's like to suffer and experience trouble. He had that throughout his life, didn't he? And then at the very end, brutally he suffered. And I often think it's such a week, really. We do go from that jubilation of Palm Sunday. But then we know that Jesus has to endure Good Friday. But what we also know, as Aid was saying, is that Easter Sunday is coming. And we can live with that knowledge. We're not like many back there who didn't really get it, who didn't really understand what was happening on Good Friday. We thought it was all over. We know it's not all over, don't we? And we need to bear in mind that between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, there's always a Good Friday. Between the Exodus and the Promised Land, there's always a long period of wilderness. And we need to know that, that as Christians, we're never promised it's always going to be easy. We're never promised that we're going to have a life of no hard time or suffering. Just as Jesus didn't bring salvation in the way the Jewish people were expecting it then, we too can never expect him to answer our prayers and the cries of the heart that we have always in the way that we want it or demand it. And I think that's a really good thing for us to hold on to this week and to realise that we might never find a solution or a resolution here on earth, but we do have God's promise to remain with us, to weep for us, and we know that he can understand whatever we may be facing and that because of him and because of what he did for us, each one of us, whether you accept it now or not, it's there for you, you can have eternal salvation. So as we wrap up, I want to look at how this is going to apply to us today. And I want us to just take a bit of time afterwards, just quietly, on our own, challenging ourselves as we walk through Holy Week. And I know Fee's going to come up in a while, she's going to pray, um, play some quiet, meditative, quiet worship, not just yet. I'm just going to lead us through what I want you to think about. Firstly, I think we need to ask ourselves, in our daily walk with the Lord, are we ready to be humble? Are we ready to be like Jesus, choosing the donkey? Or do we want that stallion? Are we content, as his followers, to drive round in our Ford Focus? Or our Robin Reliant, maybe? Or would we like a Porsche or a Ferrari for him? Are we prepared to be seen as undistinguished, insignificant, even foolish to friends and family in this world? Are we prepared, if asked by the Lord, to give up the identity of our position, maybe, our job, to move into something he's calling us to? Something which is not as glamorous, maybe. Are we even ready to stand down from a prominent role in our church life? if the Lord asks us of it of us? 
Are we more wrapped up in status or position than God? Let's ask the Lord this week to talk to us about where we find our identity and what we need to reflect him. Secondly, where do we find ourselves in that crowd on Palm Sunday? Will we have been a loyal disciple, a faithful follower? I'm sure many of us would say that we are. But even then, we can all at times be that doubting disciple, can't we? Or that fearful follower. There may be some of you here this morning who are here for the very first time and you feel a little bit like an outsider. You're not really grasping or understanding what's going on. But maybe you too have been touched by the spirit of the living God for the first time this morning. And I do believe, as Aid brought that earlier, that there is somebody here that has been touched for the very first time by God and really wants to move on with him. But it's quite a scary thing to do, to admit that publicly, isn't it? And I think that's understandable. But I think whoever it is needs really to feel the Lord speaking to them today and to share later on, just privately with aid. And how are we as one of the crowd? Are we happy to be part of the crowd when it's a time to celebrate? Or do we feel full of hope and promise? But do we have a tendency, maybe? It's easy, isn't it, to fall away a little bit, or fall silent when things become challenging or darker? Are we ready to shout along with the crowd on Palm Sunday and keep on believing when Good Friday experiences come our way? Are we living with the hope of Easter Sunday no matter what? I think how we felt in the crowd would determine, in a sense, how we'd fare during the week, wouldn't it? Would we turn against the Messiah, or would we bear with him? Would we be those who stood at the cross weeping, and supporting him, and praying for him, and loving him? Or would we turn away, unable to look? Worse still, would we join in with the cries for his crucifixion? There were those that did, that were carried along, carried along by the emotion of the crowd and the desire for a political deliverer, but their, ter- their cries of Hosanna turned to crucify him. How would we fare? Or would we simply remain silent, not speak out, not speak up for him? Have a think about how that applies to you. I really believe that if we know Jesus as our saviour, in the right sense of the word, our eternal saviour, then God will give us that capacity if we ask him to shout for him, not just on Palm Sunday, but also on Good Friday. And we can exude that joy as we do the walk of witness, you know. And in all the dark days in between as well, we'll be able to champion him and praise him and trust him in the bleakest and most hopeless of times, as well as in the times of celebration and triumph and hope and victory. So I ask you to reflect on that in the days ahead leading up to the darkness of Good Friday and ask the Lord to help you. This is what I'll be doing. I'll be asking the Lord to help me to grow in trust and faith that will sustain me no matter what season of my life I'm in. And remember, for those of you who might be in a really grim time right now, you might be in a Good Friday wilderness experience, Remember this, Easter Sunday always comes. There is always hope of new life. We are not a hopeless people. There is the resurrection. There is forgiveness to come. There is salvation. And so I ask you to hold fast to that this Holy Week as you prepare 
for Easter Sunday.